We're going to look at the first verse, uh, five verses of Ezra. Uh, so you can turn there if you uh, want to, or it will come up on the screen. And I want you to just see if you can spot a few of these hyperlinks that are there. What, things that you think, oh, actually, I should know some more about that, or it seems like I should do. These are the first five verses. It says this, In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation through all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him. Let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor, in whatever place he sojourns, be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem." Then rose up the heads of the fathers of the house of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. There's some things in there. When I was listening to some teaching on this, the guy sort of mentioned this hyperlink thing, idea, saying you need to know, you need to know some of this stuff. In the first year of, the king, of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of, uh, of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. Even in that first sentence. King Cyrus, is this historical? It's interesting. Is this, you know, who was this guy? In his first year. That the, ma- the word of the Lord might be fulfilled from the mouth of Jeremiah. Well, what is it that's being said that needs to be fulfilled? There are these other sort of little hints towards stuff. And so we see these different things. And you can, you can go, uh, here's a little bit of a timeline. You can see uh, what happened across the, the bottom. We've got the prophets, the, the, the books of the Bible, the prophets, and then some other books, the books of the Bible, Ezra, Esther, and Nehemiah across the top along this timeline. The fall of Jerusalem. Jerusalem was captured and we'll, we're going to watch a short video in a minute and we'll find out a little bit more about that. But then we see the decree of Cyrus as Ezra begins. And then we see Zerubbabel goes back to, uh, to Israel. Then a bit later on, Ezra goes back. Then Nehemiah goes back. And there are kind of these little nods as they do it that there's this... In the, in the passage that we just read, there are these little hyperlinks. So you see that I'm going to build a house... For God. Who does that remind you of? Who said that? David. I'm going to build a house for God. When, when, you, when they go back, when these people go back, I want you to give them gold and silver. Wherever they've been, as they're leaving, give them gold and silver. Cast your mind back to early lockdown two years ago. Preached through a series on Exodus. As they're leaving, the people of God are leaving Egypt. You'll plunder the Egyptians. They'll give you gold and silver. Take it. Just go. Take it. Now, as they're going back to the land, being given gold and silver, it's meant to remind you of these things. And we'll see why in a second. You can actually go 
to the British Museum, or you can go on the British Museum's website and see these fantastic 4K resolu resolution images. This is the uh, Cylinder of Cyrus, and it's, it recalls this decree, on it? Cyrus saying, everyone can go back to their country and do these things, worship their own gods. I've conquered all of these kingdoms. Now you can go back and worship your gods. You can go and look at it if you so desire. I mean, I presume it's on display somewhere. Um, or you can look at the pictures on the website. Why leave your own home? If COVID's taught us anything, why do we have to go outside anymore? Um, obviously, it's massively important to go outside. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, the writer is setting us up as he says this, as he says these things. Particularly this thing about Jeremiah. I think it's important. How's your Jeremiah knowledge? You know, we're starting to look at Ezra and Nehemiah. How's your Jeremiah knowledge? Because that's our starting point, isn't it? We're going to watch a short video which gives us an overview. Rather than me taking 20 minutes to do it, we'll do it uh, in seven. Uh, but we're going to watch a short video. But you should go and read Jeremiah in its fullness to get a, a full sense of that. Maybe that's something you can dedicate yourself to over this period of time. But for speed, we're going to watch a short video that's going to give us a summary of Jeremiah. I'll click through to it. The book of the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah was an Israelite priest who lived and worked in Jerusalem during the final decades of the kingdom of southern Judah. He was called as a prophet to warn Israel about the severe consequences of breaking their covenant with God through their idolatry and injustice, and he even predicted that the empire of Babylon would come as God's servant to bring this judgment on Israel by destroying Jerusalem taking the people into exile. And sadly, his words became reality. Jeremiah lived through the siege and destruction of Jerusalem and witnessed the exile personally. Now, this book came into existence in a really interesting way. Chapter 36 tells us that after 20 years of Jeremiah's preaching in Jerusalem, God called him to collect all of his sermons and poems and essays and commit them to writing, which Jeremiah did by employing a scribe named Baruch, who wrote down and compiled all of this material into a scroll. Now, Baruch also gathered lots of stories about Jeremiah, and he linked all the pieces together. And so this is why the book reads like an anthology, a collection of collections. It's all been arranged to present this prophet as a messenger of God's justice and grace. So the book begins with God calling Jeremiah to be a prophet, and he's given a dual vocation. He will be a prophet to Israel, but also to the nations. And his words will both uproot and tear down, but also plant and build up. In other words, he's going to accuse Israel and warn them of God's coming judgment, but he also has a message of hope for the future. Now, this opening perfectly summarizes the first large section, chapters 1 to 24. It's a collection of Jeremiah's writings from before the exile. And the core idea here is that Israel has broken the covenant with God and violated all the terms of the agreement they made that are written in the Torah. And in a number of ways. They've adopted the worship of all kinds of Canaanite gods, building idol shrines all over the land. And Jeremiah develops the metaphor of idolatry as adultery. And he uses the language of prostitution, promiscuity, unfaithfulness to describe how Israel has given their allegiance to other gods. 
Jeremiah also repeatedly accuses Israel's leaders. The priests, the kings, the other prophets have all become corrupt. They've abandoned the Torah and the covenant, which has led to a tragic result, rampant social injustice. The most vulnerable people in Israelite communities, the widows, the orphans, the immigrants, were all being taken advantage of in clear violation of the laws of the Torah, and Israel's leaders didn't even seem to care. So a classic place where all of these ideas come together is in chapter Chapter 7, it's called Jeremiah's Temple Sermon. The Israelites are coming to worship their God in the temple as if everything is just fine, but outside the temple they are worshiping other gods, and some were even adopting the horrifying Canaanite practice of child sacrifice. And so Jeremiah makes his very unpopular announcement. The God of Israel is coming in judgment. He's going to destroy his own temple and punish Israel by sending an enemy from the north. This is an army that God would allow to conquer Jerusalem, and as you read on, you discover he's talking about the great empire of Babylon. And so this all leads up to a transition in chapter 25. Israel hasn't turned back to their God, and so in the first year of Babylon's new king, Nebuchadnezzar, God tells Jeremiah to announce that the Babylonian armies are headed for Israel and all of its neighbors to conquer them and take them into exile for 70 years. He compares Babylon to a cup of wine filled to the brim with God's just anger at all of Israel's injustice and idolatry, and God will make Israel and the nations drink from this cup. Now this chapter is key to the book's design because everything that follows is going to focus on Babylon's coming attack. First on Israel in chapters 26 to 45 and then on the other nations in chapters 46 to 51. The section about Israel first contains stories about how Jeremiah begged Israel to turn back, how he warned them right up to the last minute, but the leaders of Israel kept rejecting him. The section concludes with a large collection of stories about how Jerusalem was under siege and eventually destroyed by Babylon and about how Jeremiah was persecuted all through that time and eventually kidnapped and taken against his will to Egypt by a group of Israelite rebels. Now, right here in the middle, in between all of these dark stories of disaster and judgment, is a collection of Jeremiah's messages of hope for Israel's future. So he picks up on Moses' prediction that after Israel had broken the covenant and gone into exile, see Deuteronomy 30, God would not abandon his people. Rather, he would renew his covenant with them and transform their hearts. Jeremiah develops this promise, and he says that God is going to one day inscribe the laws of the Torah, not on tablets, but rather on the hearts of his own people. He's going to heal their rebellion so that they can truly one day love and follow him fully. And so one day, Israel will return back to the land, and the Messiah from the line of David is going to come, and that's when all nations will come to recognize Israel's God as the true God. So these chapters are showing that despite Israel's apostasy, God is not going to let Israel's sin get the final word. Rather, his own faithfulness will bring about the fulfillment of his promises no matter what. After this, we find the large collection of poems about how God is going to use Babylon to judge the nations around Israel. So Egypt, Philistia, Moab, Edom, Ammon, Damascus, Hazor. But then, surprisingly, the longest poems are saved for last. And they're about God's coming judgment 
on Babylon itself. So although God used this nation to execute his justice, God doesn't endorse their violence and idolatry. And so Babylon too will come under the standard of God's justice. And so Jeremiah denounces this nation's pride and injustice as well. Now, Babylon is larger than life in these poems. And it reminds us of the image of Babylon all the way back from Genesis chapter 11. Babylon has become the archetypal rebellious nation. In their glorification of wealth and war, God's going to give this nation over to its own destruction. The book concludes with a story taken from the end of the book of 2 Kings. It tells about Babylon's final attack on Jerusalem, how they destroyed the city walls and burned the temple and took the people into exile. The story shows how Jeremiah's warnings of judgment from chapters 1 through 24 were fulfilled. But then the chapter ends with a short story about the captive Israelite king Jehoiakim. He's heir to the line of David. And the king of Babylon releases him from prison and shows him favor and invites him to eat at the royal table for the rest of his life. And that's how the book ends. So it's a little glimmer of hope. And this recalls Jeremiah's promises of hope from chapters 30 to 33. God hasn't abandoned his people or the promise of a future coming king from David's line. And so while this book contains a huge amount of warning and judgment, the final words conclude with a note of hope for the future. And that's what the book of Jeremiah is all about. That in the first year of Cyrus, the, of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, you're meant to have all of that in your head. Oh, of course, all that Jer oh, the word of Jeremiah that's going to be fulfilled. And so this, yeah, we, God said he was going to judge us. It was going to be Babylon. He came and took us, exiled but actually, there's going to be a chance to return, and there'll be a future king. He's going to, the nations of the world will look to him. And so, all of this is, is meant to sort of be there in your mind as you read this, as we read these first words. This message of uprooting and tearing down a rebellious nation that had drifted away from God, and then the promise of future restoration. These people, the people that were reading it, would have seen, they would have lived it. They would have been expectant to see, okay, God, when are you going to do it? When are we going to be able to return and rebuild and renew? When would there be restoration and rejoicing? And if we look at this timeline, we can see there are kind of these three moments where it looks like it's going to happen Ezra 1 to 6, Zerubbabel is a descendant of David. He returns to rebuild the temple. And it goes well to start with. And then everyone begins to get a bit distracted. But you think, as he's, as he's going back, he's saying, this decree, go back. You can rebuild. You can do what you like. Zerubbabel goes, yes, I'm going to go. I'm going to rebuild the temple, the place where we encounter God." feels a bit like that with church to be honest we've been in the exile of covid and we're coming back 
And it's, okay, we're going to rebuild the place where we encounter God together, where we worship God, the place of his presence. We're going to, we need to rebuild it. And for Zerubbabel and the, the Israelites that went back, it starts well, and then people start to get a bit distracted. Think of other things, and eventually when they do finish, they're kind of like, is that it? That's the temple. Okay. We can be a bit like that, can't we? So excited to get back to church. Can't wait to be back worshipping with everyone. Two hours later, was that it? This is no comment on today. Sam wasn't very good. Didn't like those songs. Well, preacher went on a bit long. You know, it can, we can have those sorts of feelings, can't we? We need to not be like that. We can't be like that with church. We need to be commit, committed and be involved. We mustn't allow ourselves to be like that. We must love the church I've read this uh, uh, probably once or twice before. I'm going to read this quote again. If you're interested in leadership within the church context, which if you're in the church context, you should be interested in leadership, either as someone being led or as someone leading, read this book. It's my favorite book on leadership, Uncorinthian Leadership. Some, my wife hates it. <laughs> um, I think well, she doesn't like it because of the style of writing, um, but I really enjoy it. Uh, it's a, it's an, a study on 1 Corinthians... Uh, but from the point of view of leadership. But it says this uh, about the church. Loving an idea or a vision or an ambition is easy. Loving the church is hard, but it is what we are called to. Love the whole global universal church, even or especially if there are some points where you see faults and flaws in it, and ways it could be better. And love the local church to which you belong and in which you serve. Not just your visionary dream of what the church ought to be, but the actual present church with all its imperfections. Love the people you serve patiently, kindly, generously, humbly, zealously, perseveringly, with warmth and devotion and loyalty and affection. We need to love the church. As a leader, I read that and I think, I need to love you guys more. I need to challenge myself to. I do love you. I need to love you more, perseveringly. That's how we all need to be with the church. I often say, if someone wants to talk about the faults with this church, hey, if you've got five hours, let's sit down together. You know, Andy and I probably know better than anyone. But we need to love the church because Jesus loves the church. He doesn't give up on it. And then what happens? So that's Zerubbabel comes back to try and restore the temple and worship and all of that kind of stuff. And then there's a bit more time, a bit of gap. And then Ezra comes back and he's, he's kind of like a new Moses. He's like, hey, I'm all about the law of the Lord. 
Let's get focused on this aspect of renewing and rebuilding. We're about the community of God. Let's, we're a people together following God. And this is what God says. And he gathers the community of God around the word of God. And it goes well to start with. And then everyone gets a bit disinterested again. And it's like, oh, do we really have to follow those things? It's, it's not that convenient, you know, this whole Sabbath thing. I'd rather just do things when I need to do them. And we can be a bit like that with the Word of God. Is it really effective in our lives? Do we read the Word of God? Do we study the Bible? Do we let it change us and shape us? Or do we do our, you know, I've got a green tick on my Bible app because I looked at it. I opened the app and closed it, but it thinks that I read it. So now I'm still up to date with my, I know these tricks. I know these tricks. I'm still up to date with my reading plan. We need to let the word of God dwell in us richly. Need to know it, think about it. Don't have to read much of it. Pick a verse, think about that verse all day long. I used to I read a book when I was sort of really first recommitted myself to following Jesus. I was reading a book and on the front cover, it's a really good book, but on the front cover it had a verse run in such a way as to win the prize. And every time I'd read the book at lunchtime and I'd put it down in my car and then I'd go back inside to work. And that verse, I just was then thinking about that verse all afternoon for like two weeks while I was re reading that book. Oh, what does that mean? What does it mean to run? Run to win. What's the prize? Am I competing against someone? What you, you know, think about these things. Let it ruminate. But we must be invested in community and in the word of God. We want to build a community of, of around the world. We, we have these values. Uh, we're going to start talking about them a bit more. That's part of the rebuilding of the church. We want to build a culture of truth. We choose to live our lives with the absolute truth of the Bible as our benchmark. We look to it for direction on how to live. And we will build a community that is genuine with relationships built on truth and honesty. We're going to have meaningful relationship, meaningful contact with one another, real community. There has to be truth and honesty. Obviously, it has to be done in love, but it has to be truth. It has to be honest in order for it to be genuine and authentic. And then there's this third kind of uh, return with Nehemiah uh, in chapters 1 to 7 of Nehemiah. He returns to build the walls of the city. And it goes so well. Like so well. There's this huge effort. Everyone seems to be playing their part. And they rebuild the balls, the walls in like, I think it's like 52 days. It's like a couple of months. It's, it's amazing. It's like this is like an epic success, which is why people love preaching from Nehemiah on leadership. They rebuild these walls that were meant to be there to protect, yeah, protect the city, the city of God, okay, but within the walls, there are these gates. And the gates are to say, hey, if you need refuge, if you need safety, if you want to come and encounter God, this is the place to do it. 
They're there to protect and guard God's people. But when we look at the end of Nehemiah, we see it hasn't worked. Actually, within the walls, corruption has infiltrated. The bad guys have got inside and taken up residence. People are doing life outside of the walls, outside of the protection and the safety that they offer. And we can be a bit like that with the church. You know, the church should not be, here's the walls, stay out. That's not what the church is meant to be like. That's why there are these gates in the city wall. Say, hey, you need refuge. You need help. Come on in. The gates are open. But there is something to be said. The, the church is meant to be a, a buttress of truth. This is, this is what is true, and we're going to stand for that. We're not going to let anything come in to spoil that, to contradict what God says. And so there are ideas and philosophies that, that shouldn't come into the church. It shouldn't be allowed in. So that we need to make sure that these walls of protection are there. We shouldn't let wrong thinking and attitudes from our culture seep in. Attitudes like consumerism and competitiveness and self-reliance. I can do it on my own. You really can't. When we do that, it all starts to go wrong, like it went wrong for the people of God in Ezra and Nehemiah. As I said, Nehemiah, who starts so well, does so well, he ends up like scuffing with people and I kicked him out and I pulled the hair out of this guy's beard. And it's, it's like, you know, if Andy and I start adopting that kind of attitude, get in touch with the new ground guys. <laughs> you know, it's, if that is not a way forward, is it? I'm trying to look around for somebody. Rob, if I started like coming, Rob, come here. You didn't go to explore group, rip that beard out. You know, that's not the way forward, is it? It's not enough to start well. You've got to endure. You've got to persevere. You've got to finish well. Look over to that side of the room. You've got to finish well, guys. Start well. You've got to finish well. So as we look at the overall big picture, there's like kind of there are these three parallel stories. That video we watched is from the Bible Project. I'm sure you you probably have heard of that. I'd recommend you check out their stuff. They've got some really good content. They've got an Ezra Nehemiah one, which is uh, helpful as well. But I thought if I show that, then I won't have anything to preach. Um, <clears throat> but. They talk about that there's these parallel stories and they end with this, these, all, these, all the time. It's like, could this be it? Is this going to be, it's, we're rebuilding, we're renewing. Is this the time it's restored? We're going to get the Messiah. Oh, no, that didn't quite work out, did it? And then again, and then again. It's like, oh, is this, oh no. I think just a few times. That's, that's kind of one of the points of the Old Testament. And that's kind of the point of these two books is, that you go, oh, is this going to be? Oh, no. Oh, didn't quite work out, did it? We need to wait now. It's kind of the point of the ultimate. The point of these books is that we're waiting for someone better. As we get to this 
disappointing end, we need to remind ourselves, this is what was promised, was that there would be a, a future king. And all the nations would look to him and say, this is it. This is what the human race has been waiting for. Surely there's a descendant of David, a king to come who will rebuild the temple, who will rule with justice and love, who will save his people, who will offer a sacrifice that lasts, who will speak the life-giving words of God to his people and equip them to follow through. Surely there must be someone who can provide safety and sanctuary and peace. And there is. There is. Jesus. We live in such a privileged position. Because we get to look back at these books and we go, I can see they're getting excited. They're going to be disappointed. But I'm not disappointed. Because I know what happens. But we still look forward, don't we? Praise the Lord. This isn't the fullness of what we, God has in store for his people. So we still look forward and we say, Lord, we want to see a rebuilding of your people. We want to see a restoration, a renewing of affection for you. And we're not meant to sit and wait for that. We're meant to be a part of what's going on. And we are. We're part of extending the kingdom of God. So as we finish, I want to just encourage you again, let's get passionate about the church. Let's get passionate about rebuilding, restoring, renewing, all of those re-words that are so positive and encouraging. God wants to restore Let's see the church how Jesus sees the church. I had such a great conversation recently uh, with two, two of you LST guys about being on the mission field. And I asked a question because this is a, 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 I think is a helpful distinction for me. Like, what do you mean by you want to be on mission? Like, do you mean you want to like, go and start an orphanage? Or do you mean like you want to see the churches grow and the kingdom of God advance and people get saved and added into a, a community of believers. And it's like, no, we're passionate about the church. It might not look like this. Please, God, if it's you know, in a different nation, it doesn't look like this. We're not talking about you know, building an empire. The church meant to reflect the culture it's in, in some ways. Should look different, should be multifaceted so that the nations can look at Jesus and we all get to experience the wonder of different people groups worshipping God. Let's get passionate about the church. How do I want us to respond to this? I want to challenge you. Lots of reading this morning. Read, maybe read Jeremiah. But commit to reading Ezra and Nehemiah over these coming weeks. If you read a chapter a week, you would easily keep up with what we're doing. I want to challenge you to see the church how Jesus does. And I want to challenge you to ask the Holy Spirit 
to bring scripture to life in your life. I'm going to pray for us. And then we'll finish. Do you want to? That's fine. <clears throat> Father God, I thank you for your words. That you are a God who speaks. That you're not silent, distant and cold. But you are involved and speaking. In many ways, you're loud, Lord. If we were just here. So I ask, give us ears to hear your word. Holy Spirit, I pray you would fill each of us again that we would be, we would have a fresh hunger for the word, a fresh understanding of it, a fresh passion to, to read and to devour it and to let it sink into us and shape and change our lives. That we would not just be hearers of the word, but doers also. Lord Jesus, I pray we would have your eyes when we see the church. Like a husband who looks at his wife and just thinks, ah, oh, everyone else, everyone else is in black and white and she is in color. Lord, let us see the church like that. Everything else is, I can see it, but this just stands out. It's just so beautiful. So I pray, fill us, Holy Spirit. Be with us as we have conversation over tea and coffee. Stir our hearts for one another. Let us grow in love and commitment to one another as a family, Lord. All for your glory as we seek to rebuild and restore and renew all that you've called us to be. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Hopefully this wasn't too much of...